Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. As part of DHC Art's 10th anniversary exhibition program, we had the incredibly good fortune to present a solo exhibition with Bill Viola, who is recognized internationally as a pioneer in video art. Viola's pieces masterfully utilize sophisticated media technologies while exploring the spiritual and perceptual side of human experience, focusing on universal themes such as birth, death, and the unfolding of consciousness. In 1995, he represented the United States at the Venice Biennial, and he has had major survey exhibitions at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1997, the Grand Palais in Paris in 2014, and the Guggenheim in Bilbao in 2017. So much of the production of the works, the organization of exhibitions, and the creation of publications is thanks to the work of Kira Perov, the executive director of Bill Viola Studio and Bill Viola's life partner. To put together the exhibition at DHC Art, we worked in close collaboration with Kira and the studio. She came to Montreal to put the final touches on the exhibition, and we sat together to talk about her incredible journey with Bill and his work. Kira, thank you so much for being with me today and taking the time after... Um, an intense install, as as they all are and all should be. Uh, we're so delighted with the show, how it turned out. And I really uh, deeply believe that people will um, experience this and it'll stay with them. I think it'll resonate with them as Bill Viola's work has stayed with me all these years. So thank you for coming and thank you for bringing this show to Montreal. Well, we're really happy to be part of the 10-year anniversary um, programs for this year. Uh, it feels very, very special. Everybody has worked so incredibly hard to make the show look gorgeous. So thank you. Oh, uh, it's great to hear. Yeah, it's it was really fortuitous that the show could occur uh, during as part of our ten year program. You know, as as you know, we have this this show in one of the buildings, which is which revolves around the notion of gift. And uh, I feel there's so many connections that uh, bring us to Bill's work. But I'd like to talk. I'd like to step back in time a little bit. And um, I know you met in the late 1970s, and maybe you could describe the circumstances around that first meeting. What drew you to his work to invite him to come all the way to Australia? about your work at that time and, and how it led to this lifelong collaboration? Uh, well, at that time, I was working as a cultural activities director, I suppose, for the campus of La Trobe University, which is just outside of Melbourne. And at that time, it was the youngest university. And also, uh, especially in the early 70s, was the most radical. So it was very interesting to be there. Um, because uh, it had uh, the country's only new music department, for example. I was very interested in in programming alternative kinds of music. It had a very large physical campus, very beautiful, so I was able to program sculpture exhibitions, especially outdoor pieces, performance works. And then I had a friend in the new music department who knew Bill. We decided that we would, in 77, organise a video exhibition. At that time, Australians 
pretty much only had access to black and white equipment. So uh, he said, hey, you know, I know a guy in New York whose work is pretty good and his father works for Pan Am. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he was able <laughs> okay. to get free airline tickets anywhere in the world. So I said, well, sure, if you, if you know his work, then let's invite him. And that's how I met Bill. Amazing. And he came for a week, he showed his work, and I was incredibly drawn to it. it it's uh, even, especially even the early mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. there was already a sense of mystery. Right. There was already a sense of uh, inner search. Yeah. And I felt like it was very familiar to me kind of like how a dream is familiar. Mm. You know, you go to a good dream, that is. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a, in a space that you feel that you've been in before. And you can't express it verbally, which I love because, uh, which is like contemporary and new music as well. You cannot analyze it. You can't come to any conclusions about it. You really just need to sit quietly and listen and participate and so the attraction was very much for the work. And of course, Bill was a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of music, um, in some of my research that I've come across, it has been pointed out that you, I guess, uh, introduced Bill to a lot of avant-garde music. Um, no, actually, it, he, he was already involved in that in, okay. in New York. Uh, okay. Yeah, he, he, was, he was very much involved, actually. He worked just after he graduated, I think. Uh, there was a workshop in Chikora. In New Hampshire, and uh, it was run by David Tudor, mm-hmm. who worked uh, with John Cage, yeah. a really, really wonderful um, composer in his own right. And so there were other people there, and so a group of uh, young people came together and they did these workshops. And in fact, that's where David Tudor gave birth to a wonderful, immersive sound visual installation called Rainforest. Yes. And Bill became part of that and toured with David to a number of cities. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, people could kind of come and go. It was a very flexible, open installation where they would either, they would have a core set of uh, objects that they would bring with them if they could, Mm -hmm. if they were transportable, or they would find objects in the location that they ended up in. And they would connect them. I'm not going to describe the whole piece because it's complicated. But basically the objects, you put a transducer on an object and it has its own vibration. And then you send through a signal into it. Very often it was like natural sounds, crickets or birds or trucks or mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. the piece itself then takes up, the sound takes on its own vibration according to whatever object it's being transported into. And then that's picked up by a pickup that sends it to speakers. And so everyone had a lot of fun listening to these things. You could feel the vibrations of the objects. Mm. Uh, and it just created this cacophony of sound everywhere they, they took it to, and it was it's just a fabulous piece. But this group also, this young group, ended up forming a little group called Composers Inside Electronics. I see. And so each one of these people, including yeah. Bill, was a composer in their own right. right. Bill, of course, was doing both. He was doing these sound pieces as well as his video works, but he never really combined the two. There is really no music at all on any of the works unless there are a couple of times where we have collaborated with a musician like Edgar Varese, who was already Mm -hmm. (laughs) passed away, Mm -hmm. or Wagner doing the Wagner opera and where there's already existing music. But Bill never put music onto any videos that we're recording. 
Most of the time it was ambient sound. Right. And when the video image itself was either slowed down or sped up, then the sound actually was transposed at the same time. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we did that for a a long time. Mm. Bill also was actually a drummer in a rock and roll band. Oh, really? So he had has a very good sense of rhythm. Mm. So, And that you can see through, if you look at the single channel videos, some of which are very long. We have one piece that's an hour and a half long, a couple of pieces that are one hour. The editing is very, very amazing. Mm. It has a beautiful sense of rhythm. And so that comes through his body, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. He learned a lot about music was very important in in the same way that it was for Nemjoon Pike as well. He started off as a musician. Music and then sort of uses of sound, uses of sound that seem to, sound seems to have become another almost, wouldn't say character, but another major component of every piece. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how sound has evolved in the work. Well, there are certain installations where uh, sound is constructed. Right. Um, and other single channel works where the sound actually is literally exactly edited together with the video, which is the most wonderful thing about mm. video because this was a, an electronic medium and it wasn't film right. where you had to record sound quite separately to the image mm-hmm. and then try and <laughs> yeah, put it together. Once, once we started using actually high-speed film cameras, we couldn't record any sound at all because right. the, that was a very, very loud experience to experience like a thousand feet of film going through a camera in a minute, which was 300 frames a second. Uh, so, wow. yeah, very, very intense. So the pieces started to become constructed, but very often from the collection of natural sounds or, for example, water mm-hmm have a lot of collections of different kinds of water sounds, recording it by the side of a creek or a waterfall or rainstorms, any of those kinds of things. But the works are incredibly visceral because Mm. of the sound. Mm -hmm. You you can be overwhelmed by more by the sound in a way than than Mm -hmm. by the, Mm -hmm. just if you were looking at the image. And so very often there's a crescendo, there's a peak, Mm -hmm. and then... um, increases the emotional response of the viewer. So, you know, it does, it becomes very emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, But the opposite is true. Silence is also a deliberate statement. I remember the first silent pieces that he decided there wouldn't be any sound at all. And this is when we were working on the Passion series Mm -hmm. from 2000 to 2002. These are portraits. These are portraits of emotions. And how can you place a sound... Mm-hmm. together with an emotion. So if you if you don't add any sound at all, the emotion itself has its own sound. You can you can experience it um, stronger, mm-hmm. a lot stronger mm-hmm. if, if there's no sound. then you're just looking at every um, uh, every motion of the face, the eyes, the the mouth, whatever, all your facial expressions. Then are you just focused on that? Mm-hmm. You don't need to have sound. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about the Mirage, the three pieces mm-hmm. from the Mirage series that are in the show, which are also silent, and how sort of the vapors given off in the in the desert also kind of have a sound in a sense mm-hmm. as you're focusing in and you're letting time pass as the figures, you know, meet in the center, come closer to you. But that haze that gets created through heat also seems to uh, have, there's some kind of synesthetic quality of the works. And 
I understand the use of silence actually in that instance as well. And it, uh, yeah, it becomes a sort of a very dimensional, multi-sensory experience. Yeah, that's very true. We have done desert pieces where there, there's a lot of wind noise and then you have to record lots of different kinds of wind noises right. <laughs> because wind noise can get pretty boring after a while. <laughs> but in those pieces, it's one take. Mm-hmm. So there's no real emotional peak that happens. What's being kind of illustrated or depicted is, is a long journey mm-hmm. and it's a long walk. And so the light changes during that time. The wind picks up the sand, uh, the dust mm-hmm. in the background, so it covers right. things. It exposes things when when the sand goes away. So you can follow the journey easier if you don't have another element that you need to be w- mm-hmm. working Registering, with, you know, dealing yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looking at his, you know, the corpus of over forty years, there's been a very coherent thematics that run through um, everything from spirituality, the body, perception, transcendence, uh, the cycles of life, um, nature, and always with the very conceptual use of the medium of video, which is the perfect medium, really, if we're exploring time as he is and you're exploring, I guess, light. When I say light, I, I think I'm referring to illumination of the self, Um, thinking about uh, representation too, and the senses. Perhaps you could offer us um, an idea of your conversations together, your collaborators in every sense. And I understand, you know, there's a team, there's ideas, and I would love to know you know, what, how you, what you discuss, you know, philosophically, conceptually, Mm -hmm. you know, you're speaking about aesthetics, um, you know, what your conversations are like for choices you make for certain pieces, etc. Well, the, um, the ideas are almost always bills. Sometimes, you know, especially in the later years, um, I have actually come up with some good ideas <laughs> after, <laughs> after such a long period of time. So what he spends his time doing is reading mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is inspired by either a certain kind of um, philosophical concept, a spiritual concept, or sometimes just a line, a phrase, and all of a sudden there might be a vision. Right. You know, um, or it may be just he's really interested in that particular concept and then he has to start really working on something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The vision part of it is much easier because it actually comes directly from who knows where, Mm -hmm. but it's there Mm -hmm. and, and he can draw it, he can see it. Uh, and I've had this experience too, actually, where, um, where something is really obvious, really, it's this is what it is and this is how we ha- have to end up. Nobody mm. else can see it or whatever, but this is how we have to end up and just it just drives you, you're driven. Um, so it's a pretty amazing thing to watch. I think um, creativity comes from inside, but it actually, it's not yours, you know, you can never own it. And I think right. that's where the connection is with, with the, gift. the gift and Lewis yeah. Hyde's. Yes. You, you can never own it. If you try to own it, it, it falls apart it, and yeah, it doesn't collapses. go where you no. need it to go. And so I think, you know, Bill has said that he first tries to empty his mind. He tries to put things aside. He he tries to not think of anything. And that's when you turn on the camera, you know, 
So when when sometimes he comes up with lists and lists of works, pieces that he feels, uh, you know, are kind of interesting, going in a certain direction, and then we'll get together and we'll discuss those works. Yeah. And sometimes I, I actually interpret his works better than he does. And so I get a gut feeling about what is actually going to work and what isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And so we work on those pieces first. Right. You know, there are lots and lots of ideas that have never come to the surface because there are just so many of them. Uh, which is kind of too bad, but I guess if you could do everything in your life, you know, you just can't <laughs> your life do would be everything. really sh- <laughs> your life would be really short because you'd be <laughs> over overstressed. But um, the wonderful thing about working uh, in a team, for example, right. like doing large projects, is uh, that other people do bring their creativity to the project as long as they don't make suggestions. You know, because those suggestions, and I've seen it happen, can divert Bill's idea and take it somewhere else. Oh, yeah. And then my job is to kind of pull it back. Okay. And I can see that because, you know, when you work with people from Hollywood, they don't, you know, they have lots of ideas, but those ideas are things that they've done in the past with the Hollywood producers and directors, and, and it's not what we do. But we use their skills, their lighting skills, their camera skills, whatever. But I, I just know that, like, for example, working on Inverted Birth, it was weeks in planning. Uh, special effects um, coordinator uh, had to mix colors right. that um, Bill was interested in using, you know, and also not just the colors, but the viscosity of right. those colors as well, mm-hmm. the thickness of the black, mm-hmm. the the kind of a little bit more uh, fluid of the red, you know, the white is then a little bit more fluid and the water, of course, is cleansing and it cleanses everything and washes everything away. So he would... During the time we were shooting the martyrs, we were four weeks in the studio, and the fifth week was uh, was inverted birth. So each week we were working on a different project, but we also had to, you know, test out other things that were happening the next week. So it was a pretty stressful, intense time, but extremely productive. Mm. So he would bring these things. We'd grab a poor old PA, you know, <laughs> production assistant, yep. and take his shirt off and start <laughs> pouring stuff yeah. on his Come head. Come over here. We want to pour some stuff <laughs> so, on you. Yeah, so uh, he would have to not only just get the right viscosity and the right kind of product, but he would have to be non-toxic because here we were, you know, throwing right. it on some poor human being mm-hmm. who was going to possibly swallow right. it or... At one point, you know, we were putting the red on and and it stained his body and we're going, (laughs) you know, that's really not going to work because we need it to wash off. That's right. So then as we progress, everybody's job becomes clearer and clearer. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then usually on the last day, on the final hour, when everybody's standing around and everybody's kind of ready and and everybody kind of knows, if we don't get this take, we're screwed because everyone's exhausted. (laughs) And then what happens is the body language kicks in and it just becomes automatic. And then, you know, we time everything, you know, because this is 50% slowed down, I think, you know, you have to time it to the exact minutes that you're counting Mm -hmm. and then everything has to run in reverse. So I'm directing the opposite of Mm -hmm. the action. Exactly. So standing there, clean clothes and slowly open your eyes and then look and then, and then it's up to him. And then he kicks in, the actor kicks in and then he does his thing. He knows and feels exactly what's coming down onto mm-hmm. him. So he responds mm-hmm. to the materials, the fluids that are coming down in his eternal way. Mm-hmm. And so then when the take is finished, everybody knows that that's the take. Oh, yeah. And there's that moment of 
in collective recognition of that well, moment. Well, but it's awesome. Yeah. Literally like, there's awe in it. the room because mm-hmm. everybody has just done something mm. that they can't believe that they just did. Yeah. And that's the most precious moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it has to be, I, you know, Bill and I could never do this on our own. It has to be collaborative effort. Together you've traveled the world and there seem to have been some pivotal moments in your travels that have had a profound bearing on your lives and in turn the work. And I was thinking about your studies in Zen Buddhism, and Zen meditation in Japan. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and how it influenced sort of ideas around uh, art practice and life practice, sort of perhaps being inextricably linked? We were very lucky when we lived in Japan that we met a, a Zen master. And this all sounds very formal, but in fact, uh, he was a really cool guy. I think he was totally what it means to be enlightened. He right. was older. Uh, he was short. He looked a little bit like a Zen master called EQ. Mm-hmm. And he even looked like him. He had the, like the scrawny face and the whole bit. And he was constantly smiling and laughing. And, and uh, But he could be pretty serious at the same time. So he was from Nagoya, so he would come to Tokyo every now and again. But we would go six days a week to a shiatsu practice, actually. But the shiatsu practice also incorporated, you know, some Zen meditation in the, in the morning. So we would go there. We would pick up some freshly made tofu or mm-hmm. whatever it was to, mm-hmm. to share with everybody after the meditation. And then he would come along. And so like we do the meditation. Everybody was all on their best behavior when he was there. <laughs> and then off we would go to Mr. Donutsu. <laughs> Mr. Donutsu. <laughs> Mr. Donutsu. And then, and then we would have the best time. We called them the Mr. Donutsu Zen lectures from, from Tanaka Sensei. <laughs> This was so typical of who this man was. Mm. You know, there was nothing that stopped him. He was an artist. Basically, he made this pottery. He would, like, be inspired. Like, And his English wasn't hardly there, and our Japanese wasn't hardly there, but we totally understood everything that he was teaching us because he was teaching us by example as well. And, like, we'd be in the middle of a conversation, and then he'd go, ah, inspiration, inspiration, and we'd have to scramble for a piece of paper or something, and then he would and then draw he would, something, yeah. some kind of bodhisattva or something Right. Like it was very cool. We had a lot of fun with him as well. It's a lot of very serious times. Yeah. I remember one time that he, we invited him to, to see some of the works, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he'd be sitting there and sitting there and watching them, and sometimes you'd hear, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> he kind of like drift off a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, so that was kind of f- fun. And then, you know, Bill was trying to explain to him what he was doing. And then he like smashed him over the on the forehead. Boom. Oh. And he said, no thinking. Mm. You know, like he was teaching us, like, stop with the words. Stop mm-hmm. with the, you know, mm-hmm. like, you yeah. don't really need that. He would call, you know, like the... Mm, Daitokuchi or any of the largest temples and things like that, he would call them Zen Mitsubishi. Uh, you know, meaning right. these are corporations mm-hmm. and they're not real. You mm-hmm. know, they've created some other kinds of, you know, thing that they've spiraled into, you know, that that has nothing to do with it. What he taught us really was Zen is sitting. Mm-hmm. Literally, you mm-hmm. sit. And while you're sitting, you realize that you are solely and totally responsible for everything that you do. And that, to me, is the essence of Zen. Mm. There's nothing that you worship. You have to believe in your own being. And so when you realize that, then you have to be compassionate because, you know, 
you're responsible for everything. There's a responsibility that we all bear. Yeah, completely. And so, you know, that being in the moment and being in the present, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. understanding that that there's just a very fine, thin line between being in this world and Mm -hmm. not being in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those kinds of things, you know, then you're free to think about. And that's part of what's in the work. Right. It's that being present. And when you're looking at the work, I find I'm aware of a certain presence or I start to become more in tune with being present, watching, being present to that work now and not thinking about how long is this and when, you know, what am I doing after? And it asks us to do that. And I find it actually, I wouldn't say it's easy, but I would say that the invitation is there. And if you're willing to accept it, then you can get there. And I think that's an interesting way that your studies have manifested themselves in works that take their time, that allow us to go through that journey and get us in touch with presence and time passage. Yeah, that's an interesting experience that you've had that seems to have translated itself uh, in a really profound way. I had some people asking me earlier today about the interpretation of inverted birth. Mm-hmm. And they gave maybe two things that they had thought of while they were, and which one was correct, you ah, know. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, well, it really, the interpretation or the understanding of this work really comes from you. And it's what you have arrived with, right. what you come with, mm. uh, and how this work is completed inside of you. Mm. And um, that there are no interpretations it can either it can be either of those things it's sure. it's it's and you know both interpretations were were, were very valid yeah. and very mm. um very personal mm. but i i always say that uh, this work gives you the gift of time as you right. were saying it's the time to just sit and reflect mm-hmm. you can self-reflect you can reflect on what on earth are they walking so long for mm-hmm. I can't want <laughs> yeah. sit here a anymore narrative. Yeah. but you know if you don't I mean people keep saying that the journey is the whole point of the journey right. and if you right. arrive you just arrive you know so that's like if you if we only just saw the arrival there wouldn't be any meaning mm-hmm. to it because you didn't you didn't experience the journey and so that's what these mm-hmm. pieces are there's always a length of time that uh, that you have to sit and wait and watch and look at, then you start getting involved in, oh, yeah, there is some dust on the horizon. Oh, mm-hmm. look at those mirages. Then you start looking at the details and then you're starting to become aware. Mm. And then you can mm-hmm. self-reflect or reflect. It's a, a really great way for me to ask you this other question, which is also linked to an approach to art and practice. Practicing art is sort of a way to move towards that self-awareness. I mean, as a as a maker, a way to maybe uncover your own journey towards enlightenment, to uncover, you know, what is my true self? And as an artist, what is my purpose? What can I contribute? What do you think about that? Well, what our Zen teacher would say <laughs> is if you are seeking enlightenment, then it's wrong. Right. You know, you can't kind of seek mm-hmm. an end. You just mm-hmm. you are you just do. You just sit. You just stay in the moment. 
I don't know anybody who can do that. <laughs> you it's, know, yes, she could, but um, it, it's it's kind of not possible to have that kind of awareness all the time. Um, basically, one of my favorite things to do is to chop vegetables. Mm. So in the Zen world, anything you do can be a meditation or an, or an awareness. So when I'm chopping vegetables, I love. I love going to the market and buying beautiful vegetables and then chopping mm. them for whatever I, I need to do. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is such a lovely thing to do. And then you don't think of anything else other than chopping those vegetables. So anybody in that sense is, can be creative, whatever field you're working in, you know. Mm-hmm. It really does underscore this whole idea of journey and that it's in that journey that things you know, interesting things happen or you can get glimpses. I don't think of enlightenment as being a state that you can attain. I think there can be glimpses and moments of it that can be caught in the most mundane or simple moments or acts mm-hmm. of the day. That recognition. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked on a lot of catalogs and books. The largest book that I've done um was a Thames and Hudson um, monograph uh, that was published a couple of years ago. John Hanhart was my writer, and then I worked also very closely with Lorraine Wilde, who, who she and I designed the book together. Basically, I knew what I, exactly what I wanted. I knew that it needed to cover, of course, the works, an idea of what forty years means in terms of output, creative output. But I also wanted to insert the journey the life's journey as well as kind of the, in a way, the technical journey. How did right. we do certain mm-hmm. things? Mm-hmm. So so there are three voices in the book. There's Bill's voice, there's John's voice, and then there's my voice because I was trying to feed John all of this information. And right. he was saying, but, you know, I don't know about this because I wasn't there. Why don't you write it? So that was great. And so it was enormous amount of work, huge <laughs> amounts of work going through Bill's notebooks, looking at drawings, looking at, you know, selecting photographs, selecting the pieces themselves that can be covered in a 280-page yeah. book. Right. <laughs> and I worked my butt off. I worked mm-hmm. day and night on this thing. And then the process was really, really intense. And then the book was finally finished and done. And I couldn't, I couldn't have an emotional response to this mm. thing that I was holding in my hand mm-hmm. because that wasn't, you know, like, even though I was working towards that, that, that was the final product. <laughs> right, right. And I hadn't actually had to print it or, you know, I guess if I, you know, somebody else printed it, somebody else then shipped it to me. Mm-hmm. And it's in a, in, a, in a way, it's kind of strange how, you know, like when women give birth to mm-hmm. babies, mm-hmm. they've had this creature, this beautiful thing in their in their bodies for nine months. And then when the baby comes out, and I had this experience two times, you don't recognize mm this being mm-hmm. you have to bond with it mm-hmm. because you've never seen it before you've never heard it you've never touched it it's been part of you now the baby has the opposite because the baby is very close to the mother because it's been part of the body and and heard the mother's mm-hmm. voice and everything else that's been going on but it's really bizarre what happens at first you you don't go oh my baby you know mm. and you just like immediately fall mm. in love with it <laughs> it takes days it actually takes days, and I was really shocked about right, that, you know. Right. And I'm thinking, why, why is this like this? Mm-hmm. And it's because you are getting to know a new person in your life. Mm-hmm. You can't just like, you know, I can meet you, mm-hmm. and it'll take me a few mm-hmm. times of getting to know you and speaking with you before I feel 
right. a close bond. Mm-hmm. And so it was with the baby and so it was with the book. Wow. Now I'm actually able to sit there and look at the mm. book and the pages mm-hmm. and go, wow, that's actually not a bad book. Right. <laughs> but the process was much more important to me because yeah. you're just, you're cooking, you know, that's you're just it. going, you know, especially towards the end. And you you know what that's like too. You yeah, you've had yeah. that experience, I'm sure, with you. No, I, and, I absolutely, your, I totally your, understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about outside the work, sort of the the nuts and bolts of things. I'm curious about some of the stories behind the creation of the works. I I, I guess I mean the uh, the the actual production. I've seen early works where it's just Bill and his camera. It seems very one sort of that one to one relationship very intimate and introspective process and eventually production for the works and you involved larger crews and uh, effects sets and actors can you talk about that shift and perhaps we can talk about a little bit of the making of um, the encounter or one of the other works in the show that we haven't discussed yet so the shift yeah from from just Bill and the camera too. Well, it's Bill and the camera and his assistant, who is there, yeah, right, <laughs> who is there since nineteen seventy nine, lugging around heavy equipment Hello. and doing the sound recordings and the video recordings as well. Yeah, yeah. and but he was he was doing the shooting. Um, yeah, we travelled around with six suitcases uh, to different parts of the world and did a lot of recordings on our own. And even for some of the installations, uh, up until ninety two. And then 92, Bill decided he wanted to make this gorgeous piece, which is really tall. It's 22 feet high, and it's projected onto a scrim. And those, in that time, we needed actually three channels because there was no projector that could right. project one image oh, that so high. Yeah, and yeah, so and we, they... we stacked it and we feathered in between. Wow, so it was yeah. a, a kind of a big technical feat. Mm-hmm. But what it is is actually um, part of it is a man upside down, and you don't know what's what's happening. It's in black and white. And w- w- how we shot it was um, going to the uh, Long Beach Olympic swimming pool, which has a 17-foot uh, deep diving section and a very high diving board. And we had a person j- jump off this diving board with their feet down. Mm-hmm. And we had to hire a cameraman for the first time. Right. In 92, Harry Dawson, and he's worked on many, many projects since then, because we were using this high-speed film. Okay. Uh, the 300 frames a second, mm-hmm. literally it was going to take him, what, a second and a half to hit the water. And so poor old Harry had to, had to train Holy his camera moly. on this guy in a very vertical position uh, and to try and keep the camera trained on him all the way down oh, until wow. he hit the water. Wow. Right? So... Of course, you know, we had to have a cameraman, we had to have mm-hmm. some lighting, we had to have underwater, we had to have safety people, and right. all of a sudden we had a crew. Right. Right? So this was all kind of shocking to us, but meantime, and plus we had to have a, a, a guy who would actually do that, do that yeah. who was actually a diving person, so he knew what to do. Mm-hmm. So in the end, the whole thing is turned upside down, and in fact, right. when you see the screen, when you see the piece, the guy is just there. On the screen, you have no idea what's going on. He was had long pants on, and his pants are kind of shaking Flapping and whatever, and you little, don't yeah. really know what's going on. And he's moving in slow motion, and then suddenly his feet hit the ceiling, and there's a huge crash in the room. And, of course, that's when he hits the, the water. water. The water is on the top. Yeah. 
It is unbelievably fantastic. It's just a beautiful uh, thing that happens. And he's just completely suspended, Mm. and you don't know Mm -hmm. how or why. So Mm -hmm. that's when we started to use a crew. In 95, we were all of a sudden working for the U.S. Pavilion in Venice, which was a really wonderful thing. And then Bill decided to make this piece uh, based on uh, uh, an image that he saw of uh, Pontormo's visitation. And the piece became the greeting. So then again, we not only uh, did we have uh, um, this high-speed film again, so Harry Dawson, our camera, we had especially uh, more intense lighting because it was a much uh, more staged um, production. We actually had a set designer and we had, um, you know, wardrobe people and all the rest of it. So working with crews became easier and easier. Right. And uh, again, they always wanted to light the Hollywood way, and we mm. would want to light the Caravaggio way, right. or the you yes, know, or, yes. or something softer or mm-hmm. different. Um, and so, so then, kind of it evolved and developed. Um, Bill was very nervous about working with actors for the first time, so we brought in a woman, Susanna Peters, who became uh, you know a wonderful teacher, and she would show Bill what it was that an actor needed to have from a director in order to work. And, of course, you know, Bill was never um, very comfortable with that. You know, he was comfortable with conveying concepts and ideas. But actors kind of needed a story. So in the end, for that piece, he had to make up a story and then they had to interact. Mm -hmm. Whatever worked Mm -hmm. anyway, but Mm -hmm. it, it actually did work. When we're working on the passions, we brought in Weber Gerritsen, who is the person who is in um, the return in the red dress, mm-hmm. and she she was wonderful. Uh, she's a drama queen, so she could turn on the right. <laughs> the tears, or she could you know oh, be highly emotive, she's so engaging, uh, and uh, she could express herself very very mm. clearly and comfortably. And just everybody loved working with Bill because they they would tell us that can we do this again? Can we work on another Mm. project? Because they were actually going back to all of the stuff that they had to try and learn and express in acting school, in drama school. Mm -hmm. Bill would, before shooting something, he would talk to every single person who was going to be in one of the pieces and he would um, ask them about did they ever have a near drowning experience or do they know someone who drowned or died or, you know, in order to start pull, pulling up those emotions. And after working with people for a while and, and people working together, they became like a real team. Mm-hmm. People bonded mm-hmm. really strongly because mm-hmm. they were going through their real emotions. This wasn't like a something that was, you know, put on for a... That's it. And there's Cornflakes no, commercial or yeah. something like that, you know. And there's no dialogue no. for for so yeah. it's really comes through conveying that and and it's um so appropriately done, you know, it's 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 the camera and the camera is really has a way with it that it doesn't allow uh for um something that's that's too big. And so all of that emotion is contained in the most subtle ways you know through these through these little expressions little turns and then with the slow motion i can imagine just how you know you're thinking you must be thinking in slow motion backward slow motion mm-hmm. you know to to get that you know to get what 
what you want for the for the camera, which is really unforgiving, if you know what I mean. Right. It's like uh, any any false move or break in concentration will be captured, and that is something I, that is truly remarkable in all of these performances. Well, very often they're just one take. Yeah. So uh, so that's you know sometimes it's a really long take, like thirty minutes, thirty five minutes. Mm-hmm which is really hard for everyone to, to keep sustain, their concentration yeah. and to sustain mm-hmm. uh, what's necessary. But, and other times it's really, really short, but then we call it micro-directing when, when you know, you've got um, 45 minutes, uh, 45 seconds rather, to complete an emotional arc. Right. And so we count it out. Okay. Every second we count it out. And so that people know where they're at and where they can... That's where it, the, where, the arc, yeah, where the arc Where they move the arc to. Is, yeah. It's like a choreography. But yeah. um, speaking of slow motion, I think the slowest piece that we ever made uh, was seven and a half hours. Right. And um, so this was fascinating. Bill had this idea. This was made for uh, MoMA in 87. Um, he wanted to shoot, he wanted to see how far you could stretch the emotions. Mm. And that was a really cool concept, you know, just just to even think about that. So we organized a four-year-old girl's birthday party and brought, I think it was a two-camera shoot maybe. And um, so everything was shot really fast. All of the camera movements, which is completely unlike Bill altogether. He mm-hmm. never did this before, but, mm-hmm. but it was totally necessary for this piece. So it was shot fast. It was zooming in and out of things. And when the cake came, zoom mm-hmm. in and out, looking at the children's faces, moving around really quickly. So the edit was about 23 minutes. It's a piece called Passage, and it has a very long hallway that you enter. And at the end of this hallway is this huge wall that you can't even stand back hardly at all to see the whole thing. The wall is wall-to-wall screen, and it's a rear projection. And um, technically, I don't know how we could reproduce this now, but we need to try at some point. Technically, we used an editor, Beta SP editing Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And plus, we had a number of copies made of the tape. It was played live every single day. So as the tape is playing... It's playing in slow motion. It's like a 16 wow. speed or something like that. Huh. So literally you see every frame going by. Yeah. And it takes about seven and a half hours For the time the time of, the, yeah. of the, uh, the, the time that the museum opens its doors and then closes its doors. And, and it's really beautiful because you can actually, and the emotions, of course, are completely there as you, mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, they're even more there. They're mm-hmm. even more present, you know, as the children's faces all light up mm-hmm. when the birthday cake comes in. And, you know, the kids are very expressive at that age. So, and then we had a little pony at the, at the party and all kinds of, I mean, it's just, but it's, it's like painting. It's like yeah. thousands of frames of painting, mm-hmm. every single one of them. And they go by, um, you know, and not smoothly, you know, very, right. very statically. That's you know. it. So um, talk about length. I know one person has actually seen it. Peter Sellers, <laughs> the really? theatre director, a very good friend, claims that he sat through <laughs> the whole entire day. <laughs> he brought a lunch. <laughs> of this, he, he doesn't eat when he's, when he's working or when he's involved. <laughs> doesn't need lunch. Um, how did you approach the choice of works for our show? What usually informs your decisions and proposals? Well, the architecture originally. And of course, um, there was some input, of course, from you. And then once we started looking very closely at the plans, we realized that one of the pieces was not going to fit, wasn't going to work. Yeah. 
So then um, I suggested, you know, broadening the scope of mm-hmm. the show, mm-hmm. which means, which is a, a wonderful thing because then it, it gives your audience here a slightly broader look at the That's kinds it. of works that we've created. Mm-hmm. And it, But it always starts with the architecture. It has exactly. to. Exactly. What works for the works, because they do always have your, their installations. I mean, you're you're aware of the space around you. You're, um, it has you're designing everything. It has yeah. volume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm really uh, excited by the new volumes that this exhibition has offered us. And um, Mm. while we have had this, uh, our largest space uh, sort of bisected in the past, it was never one straight wall. And and we actually, it seems like we have almost three spaces that are roughly the same. Um, Although one of the, one of the spaces sort of in the middle is for this show is uh, separated into two rooms. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm hoping that we can keep that wall and enjoy, you know, the, the volumes that these offer because they have so many applications for the spaces. So, Right, but not only that, but your, um, your regulars will see a big change exactly. when they walk in. That's I, the I, that, it. I love That's doing it. that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's an occasion always to change it up a little bit, to reinvent, to, to right. push the limits of what's possible. We learn a lot as well <laughs> about the spaces every time we, you know, we undertake the challenge of um, moving the walls. So thank you for that opportunity. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kira, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for your generosity in sharing all of this with us today. Oh, I really appreciate it. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Center in Montreal.